This is the Investor Frame Podcast with me, Paul Sparks. All right. Hey, guys. Welcome back to another episode of the Investor Frame. I'm Paul Sparks, and I'm joined today by one of my good friends, Jeremiah Dalton. He is a fix and flipper out of the Long Island, New York area. He and I met through the Collective Genius. Sorry, does that sometimes. Sometimes the, the sound's still on. Um, so Jeremiah does fix and flips in Long Island, which is a really tough market to uh, to to buy and sell real estate in New York. There's, you know, he's going to talk a little bit about how he navigates that. He's going to talk about the the fifty to sixty transactions that they did last year. How the majority of those are six figure flips, but just as importantly, what he's doing to shift in this current market and how he's adjusting um, to get true, you know, closer to the things that he really wants in life. I mean, he, he's the definition of of using the solvable problem in his life, his family. He's got some young kids that are extremely important to him. So I'm, I'm really happy to have Jeremiah in today to share his story. So welcome in, Jeremiah. How are you, man? I'm good, Paul. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, Happy New Year. And, um, you know, another point that I, I forgot to mention here is uh, you and I have connected a few times on you've been able to successfully raise tens of millions of dollars for your real estate deals. So I'm looking forward to hearing more about that and kind of your process there. But why don't we start by telling us a little bit about how you got into real estate because you weren't always doing real estate. No, no, no. So I was uh, an attorney and uh, I worked for a labor union uh, that was very poorly run. And uh, it was actually a union my father was in and I subsequently became a member of it and, and worked for them directly. And uh, just had a really, really bad experience there and uh, was out of the house a lot and didn't get to see my kids very often. Uh, and I just knew that there was no upward mobility for me. And it was also a real toxic environment. And so I wanted to leave. And so I started building a fix and flip business on the side. Uh, and then it grew to a point where I felt reasonably comfortable that I could jump in. Um, you know, it was a good living. I won't knock that. Um, and we had a good lifestyle as a result of that. But I wanted to be able to success successfully transition from that to fix and flip without having to uproot my family, sell my house, my belongings. Um, so I was able to do that. It wasn't easy. It wasn't totally seamless, but it did work out and uh you know been doing this now fix and flipping full time uh and it's had its ups and downs like anything else uh but i have no regrets that's great man yeah and like a lot of us we move into uh entrepreneurship and one of the things that we're told is burn the boats right go all in and uh you know i think a lot of the entrepreneurs yeah that sounds really good it, it does make for good sound bites but what i've noticed is that the people who've had success in entrepreneurship they sort of they didn't let go of one vine without grabbing the the next one first exactly. right they built a little bit of progress in. they were able to sort of work on it as a side hustle when they had, uh, let's just say, reached a minimum level that could support their family. Then they left and they went full time. Sounds like that's what you did. Yes, it is what I did. Um, and I think it was for the most part, you know, like I said, it was a fairly seamless transition. Um, I think. Going all in, I mean, I think if you don't have a family, if you're a single guy and you don't have to worry about anyone but yourself, I think that's okay, right? But when you have other people that are depending on you, I left when I had two small children and a third on the way. Um, 
but I was comfortable enough to know that at least I, I had enough money set aside that I could last about a year. And uh, I needed that money because it was an up and down year when I left. Um, but then, you know, we finally, by the end of that year, I started to really gain that momentum. Uh, and then the following year turned out to be a banner year for us. And, you know, we've been doing better and better every year ever since. Yeah. I mean, and it's not, all I'm trying to say is it's not prescriptive, right? It's not like everybody should do this. If you're 25 with no debt, and no kids, and you know, you don't have a family, it's a lot different profile than someone who's in their mid thirties that has those things. And right. So it's just not all one size fits all, but I want to hear more. So what years are we talking about here? Was this, um, that you sort of went full time and you started seeing some positive momentum? Uh, so I went full time actually in 18, but I was working at it since 2015. Um, so and it was something that I was like, well, maybe this will just be like a side thing where I make some extra money. And then I, I kind of realized at that point that it was time for me to leave, um, that this was not going to be what I thought it was going to be. So I left in 2018. And. I would tell you for anybody that is doing this, if you're going into this business, um, you have to understand, especially in the real estate world, fix and flip, um, no matter how good it looks on the outside, um, it's peaks and valleys. I think this mm -hmm. business probably has more peaks and valleys uh, than we give it credit for, much as like people like to say that real estate's a, steadily, a steady uphill climb. The stuff that happens in between, even though it may be, for the most part, a steady uphill climb, you really can be on a roller coaster. Um, mm -hmm. And I could tell you, had I left any sooner than what I did, I would not have been prepared. Yeah. And it certainly is that roller coaster. That's what they don't tell you that on HGTV and the gurus don't tell you, you know, they, they tell you, but you don't really know it until you experience it yourself. So um, I, I couldn't agree more. And I've had, I've had very similar experiences. So tell me about what your business looks like now. Like you said, like we were saying, you did about 50 to 60 flips last year or, or transactions that, that may include some flips and some other types of deals. Yeah. Some of the um, deals, yeah. So tell me about your business. What's this, what's your team look like? What's your market? You know, what, what, we're, cause we're going to talk about the shift. I know you're doing something a little different moving into 2023, but let's talk about maybe the last two years of your business and what that looks like. So we, we basically bought all over Suffolk County, which probably has like 1.8 million people. So uh, it's a good size and we run the gamut, right? We've done, we're doing a three and a half million dollar build out in the Hamptons. We also buy, you know, two to $300,000 houses, you know what I mean? In like sea level neighborhoods. So we kind of, you know, we're pretty diverse, but we tend to stay in, you know, one county. Uh, our, most of our flips, as you mentioned, they're six figure rehabs. Um, so we don't do a ton of wholetailing. We do some, but, you know, we're doing some pretty serious rehabs on these houses or we're doing new builds. My team um, consists of, a full-time acquisition person, a lead manager to handle all incoming leads, uh, two full-time maintenance people, a full-time operations person, uh, and then two overseas VAs that kind of help with the back-end uh, stuff. But we, uh, everyone's virtual, and you know we try to keep the business as uh, lean as we possibly can. Um, majority of our money is spent towards marketing to get in front of as many sellers as we can. But we also are very particular about the deals that we will buy. So my goal isn't necessarily to buy. We were doing more of that 20 through 22. Buy as many deals as you can. The market's strong. 
Now it's more, hey, let's try to buy quality projects that we feel really, really comfortable about, um, not just ones that we think, yeah, this will probably work out. Now you can't say that, right? Because if you say it'll probably work out and at worst you break even, that's not going to happen this go go around. So um, where everything we're going into, we have to feel really, really strong and comfortable about. Um, And if that means less deals, that's fine. But like I said, you know, we've tightened up a lot of our expenses to give us the flexibility to do that. Yeah. It seems like a lot of business owners are doing that. I mean, we've done the same thing. You just got to tighten it up. Um, and you have raised one of your strengths. And, and I should say, I know this because you and I are both in the collective genius together. And one of your strengths to, in order to do this level of volume and do those types of rehabs, it's not cheap. And you need to be able to raise money and you've been able to successfully do that. So what's that process like? How are you able to, to raise all the money to kind of uh, do these deals? Uh, well, first of all, I think a lot of people, like I've seen some big investors out there, right? And they'll promote hard money products and they'll say, uh, these hard money products are, are cheaper right, than private money. And then you find out like, well, it's a point and 9% which sounds pretty good, except you don't realize what that point costs you, right? So if you're in and out of a deal in two months, right? Especially if you're doing a wholesale, that point actually adds another 6% to the loan, right? Because you're in and out of a deal in two months, but yet you paid a full point as if that were to occur in the whole year. So that 9% and one point is really, if you're in and out of a deal in two months, is 15%. And so some people like they get, they don't actually actually calculate it, but I did. And so what I realized was that if I offered investors anywhere around 12 to 13% flat, that that was a number that got people intrigued um, that they wanted to invest. That was the first thing. The second thing, which I found to be important was, uh, and I've done presentation on this, is I've really tried to go out of my way to keep my investors as involved as I possibly can, make them feel like they're part of the company, like they're part of the journey without all the headaches that go into it. And what has happened is they've told other people. Mm. So a lot of that money has been raised by other investors because it's almost become a word of mouth marketing game that they just come to me. Like, do you hear people like, oh, I will go on social media and deals just come to me kind of a similar sense in the sense that we've done so right by our investors and we've really involved them that they can't help but tell other people. Now, listen, I will say this with full disclosure that I live in Long Island. It's a wealthy area. There's a lot of people with money. So I do have a bit of a competitive advantage, but at the end of the day, there's people with money everywhere. Um, Now, the other thing that we've also done is a lot of times when we're buying houses, the sellers have a great experience with us. They're walking away with a big chunk of change, right? We've taken some of our sellers and we've converted them into private investors. They've told other people. So there's a big compound effect. Um, And so over the years, we've really, you know, gone out of our way um, for everyone that invests with us, giving them a really good return. Um, And obviously we've performed. We've performed over hundreds and hundreds of transactions. And so, you know, a lot of these people who maybe started with one, $200,000 are figuring out ways to invest more because they've seen the success that they've, they've experienced the success and, you know, they want to continue to contribute. 
That's great. <clears throat> you know, success begets success, right? That's it's a snowball that that I've seen when it comes to raising capital. And I think uh, I'm I'm curious to hear what are some of the ways that you keep your investors feeling like part of the team, like they're involved in the business. How are you? What are some of the tactics and things that you're using to do that? Uh, I think a big part of it is you know giving them, letting them see the end product, seeing the process. Um, I think they've also seen some of the dark sides of things. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think you should show them that because I think there's a lot of investors, a lot of our private investors were people who were maybe considering doing flips themselves. And then when they got, they started to see what went on, they're like, I don't want to do this. I'm just better off yeah. giving money and, and stepping away. <laughs> um, in terms of involving them though, you know, anytime we buy a property, list it, put it under contract, sell it, they know, right? Like, so the communication is there. So the more you can communicate with your investors and show them what the end product looks like um, from begin, start to finish, they, I think, will really, they'll, they'll be impressed by that. Um, if you're just sending them a check, um, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but almost like with like an employee, like if you don't create a culture for your employees, a paycheck is not enough. And I think mm -hmm. for investors, um, a dividend return or an investment return isn't enough, right? There, there needs to be more of a culture that you need to create. And each investor, there's different groups. They're kind of like un groups unto themselves. The more you can do that, I think the better off you'll be um, because they would start to feel like a big family almost. Well, there's something sexy about flipping sure. expensive houses in New York, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, anywhere, but if you can show people what they're actually investing in, I, you know, I, that, that's been my experience as well is like, we're trying to curate that process of look how fun this is. You get to invest in it, but you also made an extremely val uh, valuable point there, which is a lot of us tend to sort of hide our, you know, mistakes or it, maybe we think that by not showing those mistakes that we're somehow, you know, the thing is, is what I've found is most people tend to invest with the, the folks who have gotten their teeth kicked in a few times, yeah, right? Yeah. Oh, everything's great. Nothing's ever goes wrong. I'm immediately skeptical. I want to know immediately, we call it the professional skeptic. What is, what could go wrong here? And you know, when I heard your presentation in October down in Tampa, you were talking about the things that had gone wrong in 2022. And it was an extremely moving presentation. Um, maybe you could shed a little bit of light on that and how that actually, that vulnerability, that being willing to share your mistakes, not only with your peers, but your investors, your employees, your team. How has that helped you become a stronger leader, helped you raise more money? Talk about that vulnerability and some of the mistakes you've made, how you've used that to continue building trust with your, you know, with your relationships. So one of the things I think I brought up in the presentation was we actually were um, sued. We had a title claim come up on one of our properties, which we since have resolved, luckily. And there's nothing I could have done different, right? At the end of the day, we use a great, reputable title company that, 
made a questionable decision. And to this day, I mean, even the title, the underwriter, um, that we settled, you know, with the, the plaintiff, but they wanted to fight it because they felt as though there wasn't a justifiable reason for it. But regardless, you know, our investors' money was on the hook. Now, they had ins title insurance being the lender's attorney. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that we basically stood there in the rain, continued to make payments to them. Nothing really changed on their part. You know what I mean? And so we got to, I think we did a really good job of showing them that even when something came up that was really out of everyone's control, we weren't running away. Um, but I think that built a lot of credibility. Uh, we had some losing flips this year. I was not shy about what we lost on those flips with those investors to say, hey, you know, I stood there. I got hit really hard on this, but here's your money back. Here's your principal. Here's your interest. Nothing changed for you, right? Um, and I, I think there's a great deal of respectability that they know that, hey, you know, everybody could look like a genius the last couple of years. And I'm sure to some extent, they, a few of them thought that. Well, everything's good. Everything's good. But he's had the market at his back. Yeah. Now that the market isn't at my back, we're still doing well, but it doesn't mean that, you know, we, every project is great. And on the ones that weren't great, we let them know that, you know what I mean? Because they weren't selling for a while. And, you know, we had some extensive conversations with a few of our investors about that, about what to do, worst case scenario. But we were able to get through that. And the mm -hmm. fact of the matter is, is that I think, you know, no matter what, I get it. They're going to be hesitant about the market because we're not magicians, right? There's still things that are out of our control. But I think it definitely increases your credibility, you know, and that's despite the fact that we've never missed an investor payment, that nobody has ever gotten hurt with us. Um, the fact that we were able to weather a storm, and I'm sure there's still other things that are going to come down the line, I think makes them feel that much better. I mean, if you're a big time investor and you're placing a hundred, 200, 500 million dollars type of deal with somebody, you know, Again, I think it just everyone who's made it or had success in this business has gotten kicked in the shin. They've gotten punched in the nose. And if you and if that's not the case, then you're probably too green to to, you know, you haven't been around very long or you had the entire market was just everyone was looked like a winner. Um you know, we're staring down a loss in a fix and flip that we've got right now. And, and it actually made me feel a lot better because I was like, oh, damn, Jeremiah's taken like four of these in the last year, right? <laughs> we're about to probably take a six figure loss on, on one of our fix and flips, which sounds terrible, right? But I think the lesson here is that if you play this game long enough, if you swing enough times you're going to miss, you're going to strike out a few times. Like not every time is it just soft toss and you can just smack it out of the park or get on base. Every time you're going to strike out. And really the test of somebody is like, how do you handle that adversity? Are you the type of person that makes sure all your investors get paid? Are you the type of person that gets up, dusts themselves off and keeps moving? Right. How, how, what is your leadership? What is your ability to, you know, persist and to withstand. And that's pro in my opinion, that's what most uh, accredited investors are looking for. Not just a track record of success, but like, I want to know where things went wrong and how you navigated that, right? That tells me more about a person than the fact that, yeah, you had a bunch of flips going well. Well, everyone did in that market. Yeah, exactly. exactly.
you know, and so I, when things go sideways, how do you react? And you, you obviously showed that in the last year. Yeah. And it wasn't, a, you know, a, you know, I, that was part of my presentation at first, you know, I mean, it was like a shock, right. All, all this stuff, both personally and professionally came on me very, very hard. And it got to the point where like, I was like, I don't even know if I can, you know, make it, you know, like, you know, I was like checking out. Um, but then there was, you know, you've got to pick yourself up and you take things one step at a time. And, you know, there's a lot of things that we've dealt with inside of 22 that we're still dealing with inside of 2023, you know. But the reality is, is right over here. I don't know if you can see it, right? But there's the Jim Rome poster, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, is it backwards on your end? Um, no, but, don't wish you were better. or w- yeah. Don't wish you were, it was easier to wish you were better, right? Yeah, like don't, wish you were e- don't wish you were easier, wish you were better. Don't wish you for fewer problems, wish for more skills. And don't wish for less challenges, wish for more wisdom, right? So that's really what the big lesson in all of this is, is that, you know, I, people say, well, oh, you know, and I do it too, right? Uh, going into 2023, I hope 2023 is, you know, easier than 2022. And, and that's the wrong thing to really ask for, right? Like you just say, I want to go into 2023 better, you know, be able to, if I have more problems than I had in 2022, please just give me, you know, the strength, you know what I mean? To, and the wisdom yeah. to get through them. Don't wish because the problems you can't control. A lot of these things that happen, we couldn't control. It's so all you can do is control you. That's right. And, and really, you know, I want to drive this towards the, the new direction because one of the, one of the phrases and the terms we talk about is the solvable problem. And you're right. We can't really control the external circumstances. You know, markets are going to do what markets do. Like title is going to make mistakes. You know, we're going to lose money on things. That's okay. Understood. So what are we doing to use our businesses and our investments to help us actually get closer to the things that we really want in life? And uh, you know, you're making a small pivot in your business and the way that you approach business. And I'd like to hear more about the new direction and what you guys are doing now, because knowing what you know now about the market, you're choosing to make a few changes. So talk to me about that. What are you guys doing in your business now? Well, first of all, we look and we say to ourselves, like, what was the common thread among some of these properties that weren't doing well, right? Um, one, older homes, right? Older historical homes that really just appeal to one and one. They're hard to do, um, that's first of all. And two, they appeal to a smaller group of people. That's first of all. Second thing is we have this thing called in, in our group, in a company, we call it the funky factor, right? So a lot of houses that we bought, like they were decent prices, decent areas, but they were just odd houses, right? Funky yeah. houses. The funky factor, I love it. Yeah, we call it the funky factor. So like when a deal comes in, we're evaluating it, whoever went on it, it's like, hey, what's the funky factor here? And if, you know, we're trying to look for straightforward cookie cutter houses in lower price points that we know there's still strong demand. One of the things about Long Island that other areas haven't encountered, very hard to build here. Towns do not make it easy. As a result, in the run-up from 2007, 2008 till now, where across the nation, builders were skeptical because so many of the big builders got killed. But I think even more so, combined with the townships really just not being cooperative, and just zoning and lot, we didn't build a lot here. So as much as I joke and complain about how townships make it hard, they've made it harder for everybody. 
And so while we've definitely seen a decrease on our end from a demand standpoint, we still have a healthy market, right? Um, and so for us, it's important that we put the right houses in front of the right groups of people. That's a big approach. Now, that doesn't mean that we can always go for the cookie cutter houses and the lower to median price points that we know have a ton of people. We also have to, obviously, if we're outside of that, we have to have bigger spreads. The point is, is that it's we're looking for cookie cutter houses, and if they're not totally cookie cutter, they at least have to have big spreads. And we are we are being as selective as we can be so that we know that just about any house that we are buying, if the market really drops on us, which it very well could, we don't know where inflation is going to go, which, by the way, on a side note, everyone's talking about the Fed keep raising rates. The Fed can keep raising rates all they want. You know what I mean? That's not going to impact the 10-year treasury, which is what drives mortgage rates, right? Um, if inflation goes down, the Fed can continue to raise rates. Inflation goes down, the 10 years is going to respond to that. But I just wanted to mention that point because I feel like a lot of people keep talking about the Fed raising rates. But it's important for us as we go into this market shift that if we do see a further increase in rates and it's going to impact, you know, the the affordability of homes that we're still in price points that are very much in demand. And if we don't get the number we want, we're not going to lose money. That's really what this is about. Um, and yeah. so we've just made a real focus. Um, the theme of 2023 is slow down to speed up. And that's mm. on a number of fronts, right? Um, we want to slow down so that we can do the houses that we do better than we've ever done them. So we can make, hopefully as much money as we're used to making per house, lower our expenses so that there isn't this constant pressure to do more and more and more deals just to cover our overhead. We could take our time and be more methodical about what we pick out. And then as a result of doing less houses, that's going to lighten up my load, right? I mean, and that's going to allow me going back to the things that doing what we, the whole point of this business for me is to create the income and the lifestyle so that I can be with my family and my kids. I love traveling with my kids. I will tell you that week-long vacations with three small children could wear <laughs> you down, but I love doing like short little weekend trips, two, three day, day getaways, switch it up a little bit. I love doing that as often as I can do. I did, you know, 10 of those in 2022. We were doing like a little weekend get getaway. I want to do even more of that in 2023, you know what I mean? And not go away feeling like, you know, having the wheels spinning about what's going on here, what's going on there. Because despite the fact that 2022, we did all this, you know, traveling, a lot of times I was preoccupied. Mm -hmm. Well, let's, let's hit on that. You know, a lot of times in our businesses were, you know, we have these two worlds almost. You have business and then you have life. And you know what we tell ourselves is, well, I'm using the business to support my life. But oftentimes we make decisions in our business because we're optimizing for revenue. And in your family time, you're not optimizing for revenue necessarily. You're optimizing for like how much energy, maybe it's not necessarily time. A lot of us say we want more time with our family and kids. And yeah, maybe we want a little bit more time. I, I joke because it's it's like COVID actually showed us we don't really want more time with our kids. 
we want more energy and presence when we're with them. We want yeah. to be attentive. We want to be there and present and not worrying about that fix and flip or that, you know, that, you know, annoying challenge with a contractor or whatever it is that we deal with in our, you know, business. Um, so we're like, we're kind of optimizing for two different things. And what I found was there's a disconnect there. And so in business, are you still optimizing for the most amount of revenue possible? Or are you optimizing for, um, well, I should just ask like, Maybe it's like reliability or like consistency, predictability. Return, return, return on time, right? Um, that's for me what's most important. How can I make the most amount of money with as little time invested? You know, I'm doing this big build out in East Hampton and we should do very well on it. But if I look at return on time, it's not very good. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's a lot of things that I probably wish I had done differently. But I look at some of this other stuff, other transactions that we did where I don't make nearly as much, but it was a smooth and easy transaction that, you know, I wish I could just compound that effect. Now, you can't control it. New York's a tough market to transact real estate in. There's so many people with their fingers in there. You got a bad attorney on the buyer or seller side can make things a nightmare. Um, so I would tell you that I'm looking to try the big... You know, I set goals, right? Um, and a big thing for me this year is just saying no more, right? Not letting people take up my time, only focusing on stuff that things like this that I enjoy or things that are really going to make me money. The more I say no, um, that the better off it is. I mean, there's that, I think, you know, Darren Hardy, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever read any of his books. I interviewed Warren Buffett. What's the secret to your success? You know, of the hundred things that are presented, he thought he was going to get to the Oracle of Omaha. He was going to give him this huge, you know, this dissertation. He said, of the hundred things that people present, I say, no, I mean, not, no, to 95 of them. Right? There's a story of Richard Branson. They're going to offer millions of dollars as a speaking fee. And he said, his office was like, we'll make it clear. Focus on three things right now. And speaking for a fee is not one of them. That's it. You know what I mean? And so... And they were gonna, I, they were gonna give him a private jet. It was gonna be a few hours worth of his time. It did not align with what he was doing. And so, do I have the ability to turn down a million dollar fee right now? No. But do I have the ability to say no to a lot of things that are detracting me? One hundred percent. Well, and if you're optimizing for your return on time saying yes to a million dollar speaking fee might be something worth considering, of right? Course. It just comes back to like, what are you actually trying to get more of? What are you trying to get closer to? I have a coach who says the number one word in a champion's vocabulary is restraint. You have to have restraint in entrepreneurship, which is not the, a lot of us learn that because we've gotten beat down so many times by the decisions that we've made because we err on the side of, but I could make more money if I did this. I could make money if I did this, right? And we get shiny object syndrome. That's another way of saying that is like, you're just distracted by trying to chase too many things. Sure. And when you don't have clarity on what you're actually trying to get more of, you start making decisions based off of your emotions on like, that sounds really cool. I would love to take that speaking engagement because- I could make a bunch of money and a bunch of people will see me. And it's like, yeah, but 
that actually gets you further away from what you want because what you want is more time or more XYZ. Um, so lack of clarity in my mind is what's contributed to all sorts of me running around in circles, trying to do a bunch of things, but we're not going to let that happen anymore, right? This is the year of restraint. This is the year of building more reliability into, into your business specifically um, so that you have a, not only a higher return on your time, but because your family is extremely important to you as well, right? So do you feel like you've got clarity in, in the business around like why the business is there in the first place? It's there to support some greater goal, ideally, right? Do you feel like you have that clarity? Oh, I have the clarity. Um, it's just a matter of being able to implement it. You know, right. right now, like I can't undo some of the things that have gone on. I obviously have to get to through that. But everything that we've done moving forward is with the mindset of, hey, how much time is this going to take? Is this really going to be worth our time? Right. You know what I mean? So all I can do is move forward into 2023. And we've done that over the last couple of months. Um, where I passed on things that, you know, I in the other in past months or years, I would have gone for hundred um, percent. And even though some of it looks good on paper, sometimes you have to trust your gut and your instinct and say, this just, you know, is not worth it. Um, and so, yes, I mean, for me, a big part of some recent success or clarity that I've had is also being making fitness a priority, right? But back in September, you know, I hired somebody that I saw another investor had a ton of success with, went through a full physical transformation. Um, and I've embarked on that same journey. And I'm not where I want to be, but I'm on track to be where I want to be by the summertime. And that's put a lot of clarity and focus, right? Because I've had to dedicate a, a specific window of time to make sure I get my things done. Um, which has forced me to say no, because I've had some, this big, this goal of getting to that point. And again, it goes back to saying no to just, you know, to anything that isn't aligned with what it is you have to do. Um, it also means trimming a lot of the fat, you know what I mean? And, and that was something that we had to do as well in this business. We really had, you know, to trim out things that weren't really producing the return, go all in on the stuff that was working. Um, and reduce our overhead enough because when you have, I mean, at one point my overhead was over a hundred thousand a month and that puts a lot of pressure on you to do more deals. Mm -hmm. And it probably puts more pressure on you to do <clears throat> deals that aren't smart to do. Yeah, you might make money on it, but again, there's so many deals that I did this past year that we made some money on. It just wasn't worth a headache. You know yeah. what I mean? And so that's, to me, more than anything, having, you know, having gone through what we've done the past couple of years, you know, knowing that I don't have that same overhead anymore, I, it's a tremendous weight that's been there. And it's, it's given yeah. me the clarity, you know, one thing compounded, one thing begets another. And, and that's really where it starts. So what is the importance of defining these rules up front because you've you've talked about fitness you've talked about the funky factor you've talked about things like this <clears throat> where i've made mistakes in the past is 
yeah, I, I say that I have clarity, but I I have skipped the 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 step where I'm like, you know, all these things have to be met in order for me to say yes to this. And mm-hmm. if they don't meet that, we're not doing it. I found that by not defining those things up front uh, has led me to make more emotional decisions in the moment. So what's the importance of, you know, clarity is one thing, but like actually writing it down, defining it, making it not only clear to you, but to everyone else involved. I will not buy a house unless X. I will not do something unless Y. You know, what's the importance of that for you? Yeah, so I mean, I think we defined it uh, for purposes of the houses, right? Like our, you know, our spread is defined by, you know, if the house has to meet a certain threshold between purchase and repairs, has to be in a certain price point. Um, and if it's not in a certain price point, then that spread has to be larger, right? And that's easily definable with simple metrics. So that you can, you know, right, take two minutes and you're done with that element of it. Um what for me, I think is most important is you have to kind of lead with no, right? So my all my inclination was always to say yes, right? So again, the theme of this year is slowing down. So the moment something's presented with me, the first thing in my mind was no. I may not say it out loud, but the first thing in my mind is no, okay? But now I'm going to take a step back and really, really think about it. So from a personal standpoint, okay, I know that phone calls, back and forth, I'm not spending more than an hour a day on that stuff, okay? Now, again, that doesn't mean it's a hard and fast rule. Maybe it's an hour and 10, hour and 15, but I'm I'm saying that correspondence on the phone, this thing ringing, I'm not spending more than an hour a day on it, okay? So that's first and foremost. And so far as the business itself, I would tell you that the next thing I have to do is when something comes in, before I jump into it, I always have to say it's, again, you read the book, who, not how, right? For the next thing, after I say no, I think about it. If I can do it, great. If I can't do it, who can do this? Okay. And immediately passing it along to that person. And I think from a personnel standpoint, tightening up things and getting certain of our key people more engaged in other elements that they weren't engaged in in the past is going to be a tremendous boom. Um, And again, this is an evolutionary process for me. 2023 is going to be about how I figure a lot of that part out. But at least up front, those are the two things that I'm putting into play. I know that the right I have the right people to help reduce that burden. That coupled with doing more lucrative and less projects, I think you add all those factors together. Um, I think we're gonna. I'm not gonna solve it all at once in this in this year, but I'm gonna get a lot further than I was last year. Mm-hmm. I think you will too. We call these things uh, as part of the certainty operating system in the Whale Club. We refer to this as the commissioner frame. You know, so. Uh, if you imagine like a commissioner of a league or something like this, right? They're the ones who are writing the rules and the, you know, the things that we're going or not going to do, how we're going to play this game. And we are the commissioners of our life. We're the commissioners of our business. And it's, it's up to us to define these things ahead of time because 
when you start playing the game, if you don't have the rules in place, you just start making things up as you go. So a couple of the things that you've touched on, um, you know, we talk all the time about is preventive versus detective controls. Obviously, we would like to prevent bad things from happening, prevent bad decisions in the first place. If we can do certain things, you know, so the example might be if you got kids and you don't want them to watch R-rated stuff, right, you might have parental controls. So they can't even get to it unless you go in and actually opt into it. So the more we can set things like that up in our business that prevent us from making decisions without opting in, the better, right? We want to you know, have these preventive controls, but we also want to have detective controls so that we've, we find out, hey, you spent more than an hour a day on the phone, right? It'd be nice to be able to prevent that in the first place, but if you can't prevent it, at least we want to detect it so that we can make changes along the way. And I love that you're, you're doing that in all different areas of your business, setting up these things ahead of time. Because again, the risk of not doing that is that you get into the situation and all of a sudden you start justifying things. Well, yeah, but I could make that, you know, more money doing this. You've got to have non-negotiables. You've got to have restraint in this business because otherwise your human, you know, mindset takes over and you just start reacting from that, you know, biological side of your brain. It's like, the scarcity side, the FOMO. I could make more money if I don't take this. I'll be missing out on something, right? To that point, you have to ask yourself, to what end, right? So I can make more money. Okay, then what? what what's that money going to do? You know, for me, one of the things that helped put things in perspective for me was when we were losing some money on flips, we also had some great flips too. And I would, after I would close a big flip, I would say to myself, how do I feel? Do you feel any different? And I'd say, no, not really. So why should it be any different if you lose? If you're going to feel any different? So it's the same process in terms of, well, I can make more money. Okay. And what will you do with the money? You know what I mean? What's that... Um, that story about the businessman and the fisherman, you know what I mean? You ever hear that story where he sees yeah, the Mexican fisherman? fisherman? Yeah. And he's telling him this, this, this. And then when he finally gets to the end point, he goes, you know, well, and he goes, well, then what would you do? He goes, well, I would, you know, be here fishing, fishing all day, yeah. fishing all day. Exactly what he's doing right now. So that that's to me really like when I, I realized like there was so much money that was coming in and we're doing well, but it didn't really make me feel any different. Um, that was when I realized that it wasn't worth it, that at the end of the day, um, what was more important for me was to have that feeling of control over my life, which I really was starting to lose. You know, and you're, you're, you're perfectly describing what we call the, the first wealth commandment, which is, you know, closer versus more. More is this endless loop, you know, in the Mexican fisherman example, he's telling him, well, if you bought more boats, then you could have more and then you could sell it to these people and then you could double your business and then you could sell. It, and then and then what would you do all day? Well, you I would have passive income and I just sit around. And so oftentimes and, you know, and fish all day. So what I found in my own life is I hadn't defined what I actually wanted. 
And, you know, you write goals like, yeah, I want to make a million dollars or I want to have $10,000 a month in passive income or, you know, just whatever that monetary goal is. And that's fine. You should have monetary goals, but they should be reverse engineered from the life that you want to live. And oftentimes what I've found is, especially in real estate, we get tied up in our wrapping our identity into the tool that we're using. Right. So we say, I'm a fix and flipper. And it's like, yeah, but that's just a tool you're using to help you get the things that you want in life. Maybe you don't realize yet that there are more important things in life than flipping a house. You know, it's, it's, it's a tool that you're using to get something else. So if you don't have clarity on, you know, the type of life that you want, and then it's fine. If you want the jumbo jet and you want the private island, no judgment here. There is no judgment around any of that. It's just a matter of you've got to get clarity on what those things are. So you have a mechanism to know whether you're getting closer so that the tools you're using as you create cash, as you create revenue in your business can go to help you locking those things in without this like chasing more and more and more, because that's a game you will not lose or sorry, you will not win. You will lose that game more times than not. I've, I've seen it most of the time manifest in like health problems, mental breakdowns, screw it. Let's just sell the business. I hate this. Right. Or it's your wife leaves you or your, you know, your kids can't stand you cause you're never around yada, yada, yada. So, you know, I, I, it's, it's so important to have clarity on what you actually want in life. Cause in the Mexican fisherman story, all he wanted was to just fish all day. Right. That doesn't really take that much money. You know, and so more is not really the answer. It's closer that we actually want. Yeah. And so, you know, for me, right, like I, I go back to the fitness thing. and, you know, I was blessed to, to come across the trainer. And I know from a, a number of different standpoints, right, physically, like I want to be at a certain level as a father. I want to be at a certain level at a husband. I want to be at a certain level. Out of the provider, I want to be at a certain level. And I also want to be uh, at a certain level in terms of providing impact to others, right? Like, so those are kind of like the five pillars that I want to be. And I could tell you, I was a good father, but I was distant in the sense of like, I was always distracted, right? Um, and I'm not 100% there, but I'm, I'm getting better at that. Um wasn't a bad husband by any stretch, but certainly room for improvement there. Physically, I've always physically felt good, but I didn't look it, right? So we were falling short on, on that. Area. I wasn't really making much of an impact on others. The only thing I was still good at was being a good provider, right? And so looking back, it was like, okay, well, how can I still be a good provider, but hit all, all those other four points? You know what I mean? And it just comes down to, like you said, being more efficient. You don't have to be with your kids all the time. I'm sure they don't want to be with me all the time. But when you're with them, you're giving them the best. When you're, as a husband, you're giving you know, her or him the best, okay? Um, Fitness-wise, one of the things that worked really well for me is the ability to, you know, we did a lot of things to kind of optimize. So I wasn't feeling hungry all the time. But my workouts are only three days a week for 40 minutes. You know what I mean? Anybody can do that. You know what I mean? So just optimizing those areas, you know, the 80-20 rule, just finding the key components that will trigger the most results in the, less of, in the least amount of time 
that's important to me. And I know that if I could be a good father, I could be a good husband, be a good provider, be in really good shape, those things, especially if I forecast them out to the world through social media, well, the fifth one will probably take care of itself. Mm -hmm. You know, and I just, I love that, that you're saying all this because, well, how much money does it cost to be a good father? How much money does it take to be a good husband? How much money does it take to be in good physical health? It's How much money does it take to make an impact? It's, it's the Mexican fisherman story, right? We just, we all get caught up in business and it's fine. Like be good at business. Like I'm a competitive person. I like to win. I like to play business as a sport, as I like to say, you know, but it can't come. There's trade-offs to everything. It can't come at the expense of the things that you've identified as your number one priorities in life. And you have to define these things up front. Otherwise, because biologically, we're not wired to optimize. We're wired to maximize. We're wired to like chase more and more and more and more. And if you don't have restraint, if you don't have the ability to say no, like you're saying, well, <laughs> you're going to fall, you're going to fall prey to that. Um, so I love that you've shared all this. I thought this was a great conversation. Um, how can people get a hold of you, Jeremiah? If someone wants to learn more about raising money, about how your, you know, your your business in Long Island, they want to connect with you, where can they go to do that? Uh, you can find me, Jeremiah Dalton, on Facebook, Suffolk County House Buyers on Facebook or Instagram, or Jeremiah Dalton, the underscore on Instagram. Uh, those are the easiest ways. Awesome. Yeah, we'll put all that stuff in the show notes for you guys. And I highly encourage you to uh, reach out and connect with Jeremiah. I mean, he's just a wealth of knowledge in the real estate space. But really what moved me significantly was the last time I heard him speak was he was speaking about this idea of restraint and how to remove some of the things in, that we've accumulated in our life, right, to actually help us get closer to the things that we want. He embodies that uh, to a really high degree. So anyways, I appreciate you sharing your story with me, Jeremiah. And Thank you. Man. Hopefully, I appreciate uh, you having me. Yeah. So for you guys, thanks for tuning in and uh, we'll see you on the next episode.